Pastor Danes, Pastor Danes, we're glad you're here, brother. Praying for you. Looking for what God's going to say through you. All right? Appreciate Amen. It, appreciate it. Thank you so much. Good morning, Firewheel. Good morning, Firewheel. Okay, good. You guys are awake. I'm like, you started to sound like the early crowd. They were leaving. I'm like, y'all need some coffee or something. But I said, good morning. Like, good morning. But you guys are up, right? Yeah. You already had breakfast and everything. Yeah. All right. I'm going to act. <laughs> Ready for lunch. I'm right there with you. Um, my name is Pastor Teran Dames. I'm the senior pastor at North Dallas Community Bible Fellowship Church. It's a very long name. Uh, <laughs> right there off of George Bush and Jupiter. And Chris, a good friend, asked me to come for the next two weeks and do a very difficult task that is to stand in his place. It's sort of like me standing behind the Apostle Paul. I don't know how you do that. You can't. Uh, you know, I, I'm not worthy, but I am very appreciative for the opportunity I have to speak to this beautiful uh, family of believers. And so today, I just want to address um, to you, um, first let me introduce my family, I'm sorry. My beautiful wife is here with me. Beautiful wife, wave, can you just wave? See here? Yes, that's the wave right there, that's the wave. Uh, and then I have my beautiful daughter. Oh, Addie, you could just do the, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's my eldest son, Nathan. Power to the people, power to the people, yes. Right, all right, all right. And then that's my baby boy right there, Nehemiah. Nemo, give away. All right. And Daniel is over in children's ministry because if he wasn't, he would have been climbing up on your roof. So uh, we put him in children's ministry where all the climbers are. So... <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's my family. They're here with me. I'm thankful for the opportunity to be able to, to speak to you this morning. I pray that the Lord will lead and guide. I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me uh, as we go through the reading of God's Word. And I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Colossians in chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And today we're going to go over what it means to have a practical faith. Can you say that with me? Practical faith. Okay. I, I think two of you got it. Um, would the rest of you join in? Say practical faith. And that's what we're going to be going over this morning, what it means to have a practical faith. And I'll be going from verse 13 of Colossians chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 3. But right now, I only want to read the first three verses. That's from verse 13 to verse 15. And then we're going to dive into this. Amen. It reads as follows. For he delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transformed us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. May the Lord add the blessing to the reading of his word. Father God, as we come before you this morning, I pray and I ask that you would govern our hearts and our minds and that your word this morning, as you speak through me by the power of your spirit, will fall on fertile soil. I pray that it will not fall along the path or among the stones, among the thorns, but it will fall on fertile ground and it will produce a harvest to come. And so for everything that you're about to do, we wait in expectation and we give you glory and praise in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. 
In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I might as well say it right now. I speak fast. So if at any given point it sounds like I'm going 50 miles an hour, it's probably because I am. Um, I tend to speak fast when my words tend to slow down. So meaning I don't want to stutter, so I keep going. Sometimes my tongue will, will not catch up with my words. So I speak sometimes pretty quickly. But I'm going to try to be as clear as I can. Can everybody hear me? Good. Now there is something very interesting about the concept or the idea of practical faith. Meaning, when I use the term practical, I'm speaking about applied, applying something to practice or applying something to your life. So in other words, when I use the term practical faith, I am using the word practical as the living out of one's faith or the application of faith to everyday life. We call that practice. That is the application of faith to everyday life. Now, this can only happen from the inside out. Remember, Jesus said, it is not what comes from outside of a man that defiles him, but that which comes from within. And so this faith that we have is living it from the inside out. It's showing the heart of the believer through the actions of life. And so therefore, how you think in your heart, the scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So your thought pattern, and when I use the term heart, I'm not speaking of a blood vessel, I'm speaking of your mind, your will, your intellect, your whole thought process. So as you think, that is your heart bringing forth good or evil fruit. And this is why it says, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Because in the way of thinking of children, there is something where they are not to a mature state as yet, so they will do what we call to be foolishness. But then we realize we have some adults who act like children also, and they would do foolishness. And so foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. So that means if an adult is doing foolish things, that adult is acting like a child. And so when we look at this practical faith, what does it mean to have a practical faith? Well, first of all, our faith is based on Yeshua HaMashiach, or we call him in the Greek, Jesus Christos or Jesus to Christ. So when we're looking at our faith, that is Christianity, you can either live a noun Christianity or a verb Christianity. Now the noun Christianity is just by name. I am a Christian. That's what most American Christians say in the church, I am a Christian. But what do you practically mean by that? Because the term Christian verb, you see that person, you don't um, necessarily look for a name. In other words, that person is doing the work of a Christian versus using the name of a Christian. In the early church, they were called Christians not because they were calling themselves Christians, because the Christians were not calling themselves Christians. It was the non-believers calling them followers of the way. So when someone looks at you because of the works that you are doing and say you're doing the works of Yahweh, then you're a Christian. And so that was where the title Christian came from, individuals who were calling those who were following Jesus Christians, and it was a derogatory term, but it was a verb because they were being baby Jesuses or they were being like Christ. And so today, if we use the word, I'm a Christian, as a noun, that's just a title. But if you use the term Christian as a verb, then that's who you are. And so in the church, we have too many noun Christians. 
Was that clear? In the church, in Western civilization, we have a lot of noun Christians because verb Christians are seldomly seen because the noun Christians have taken over. And this is why today I want to speak to you on this whole concept of a practical faith, a practical faith. What does it mean to live out what we believe in our everyday life? Now, with a practical faith, we must first understand that Jesus Christ is the center. So I'm going to focus on two things. This week, I'm going to look at Christ himself, and then next week, I'm going to look at the word that he has given us. So right now, in focusing on Jesus Christ, Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, and he is speaking to them, and he's telling them something very specific, and I want us to see this central focus of Christ, or why is Christ the center or the foundation of the Christian life? Because if Jesus Christ himself is not the center, if he is not the foundation of your life as a believer, then you truly need to question whether or not he is your savior. Because if he doesn't take the dominant place in your life, in your mind, in your thinking, if he comes secondary to anything, then he is not your God. Because he takes place, he takes second place to no one, he takes second place to nothing. Jesus doesn't come after your marriage or after your husband or after your wife or after your children or after your job or after your finances. Jesus is before all things. And if he does not have that central place in your life, you need to question whether or not you know him. Because many people call on the name of Jesus, but they don't know him at all. We have those who call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's a completely different Jesus they're speaking of. That Jesus they're speaking of is nothing more than a demon. It's a false god, a, 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 the demon Satan masquerading as an angel of light, appearing to them because he's nothing more than the brother of Lucifer anyway. Um, he's a demi-god, and he's no god at all. And if you look at Jehovah Witnesses, they say that Jesus is no God at all. He's, he's not Jehovah. And so when they say Jehovah, they're not speaking about Jesus. Even though they use the term Jesus and they would try to use different parts of Scripture, they focus more on this demon book called the Watchtower, this demon magazine called the Watchtower. And we need to be very careful because the apostle um, John said that many will come in the last days saying that they are of Christ, but you would know them if they preach the same gospel as us. And so when we look at this whole point of the Christian life, Jesus Christ is at center. He's the vocal point of every single thing that we do. As a matter of fact, going back to AD 451 at the council decree of Chalcedon, the council at Chalcedon stated that we all with one voice confess our Lord Jesus Christ, one and the same Son, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, acknowledging two natures without confusion, without change, without division, or without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way abolished because of the union, but rather the characteristic property of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person. In other words, he was saying, this council is saying that Jesus Christ it was fully human and fully God all at the same time. And if you don't view him as fully human and fully God, then he cannot be your God. And throughout church history, we come to believe and know based on Scripture 
the findings of this council to be true that Jesus Christ is indeed 100% God and 100% man all at the same time. So why is Christ the center of our life as believers? Why should Christ be the center? Well, I'm going to give you six reasons why Christ is the center of your life. And if you don't hold to one of these six reasons, then you need to go home or you need to um, stop and think and contemplate and pray to God and ask Him to work on your heart. Because we need to know who it is that we say that we are serving. Because when we know who it is, then that gives us by the Spirit of God the power to do or to allow God's Spirit to do a work within us. So let me run on into this passage. Paul now is speaking to the church at Galossae. He is telling them how they are supposed to live this practical Christian life. He's, he's being thankful for all that they have done and he's letting them know and he's so glad and now he's going to tell them about Christ, who Jesus Christ truly is. And his first statement to them this first point that I want to bring out is found in verse 13 and 14. Christ is our Redeemer. This is the first thing that Paul is going to make sure that the folks in this church understand. Watch what he says. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Now, wait a minute. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that Jesus Christ redeemed us, but what did he redeem us from? You know, we have to go back to the Garden of Eden. When God made man and he made Adam and he made Eve, he took a rip from Adam and made Eve in the image of him. He created them, male and female. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. At birth, that was their sex was male and female. God made man man y jane woman x made man and woman male and female i have to keep saying that because in this culture people don't know what is male and what is female so so he made man and and and, and woman and he placed them together in a union and the two became one but something very interesting happened in genesis chapter 3 we see eve is is standing there chilling in the garden and then this serpent thing came to eve and the serpent started to talk to eve now here's where we saw the first the first dysfunctional family okay imperfection we have a man a perfect man he has no flaws this awesome dude right has no flaws he's chiseled looks like the rock Dwayne johnson He's chiseled, right? He looks real nice, real fine, tall, dark, and handsome. And he's chilling there, and his wife is being macked by a snake, and he's saying nothing. His, he's right there, and this dude talking to his wife. Hey, baby. How you doing? And Eve right there, re, re, Adam is right there. She don't even care. Oh, I'm good. How you doing? And he's like, did God really say you know what? I don't even think he said that. <laughs> and she's listening to a serpent, right? And the serpent is challenging everything God said. Adam was the one who God gave commands to. Adam is right there hearing the serpent speak to his wife, and Adam is saying nothing. Passive in the home. Any man who's passive in the home is not a leader. Therefore, he's not representing God. 
because God has placed us in the home to be his representatives. We serve in our homes, but we serve under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's another story. Let me get back. So we see here serpent. The serpent is speaking to Eve. Eve then makes up a story about God. Well, he said we shouldn't touch the tree. Uh, wait a minute. Where was that found? God never said that. All God said is don't eat the fruit. You could climb the tree, build a swing, swing in it, make a hammock, lie on it. You can build a tree house. He never said not to go in the tree or go by the tree or touch the tree. He said, don't eat the fruit of the tree. But she said, God said, don't touch the tree or else you'll die. I'm like, so she started adding words to God's mouth. So within herself, she became a liar. But there was no sin yet. And she's lying because the deceiver is there and he deceived. And as he deceived Eve, this is why Paul said it was not the man who was deceived, but the woman. So what does that mean? When Eve was deceived, Adam was there with his eyes open. Satan didn't go to Adam for a reason. He went to Eve. Eve came to Adam. Adam didn't ask Eve, where did you get that fruit? Why are you eating that fruit? Something is wrong with that fruit. No, he just said, okay, okay. It just tastes good. Oh, you naked. <laughs> she was, he was standing there. He ate the fruit willfully, knowingly went into sin. This is why it is necessary now for us to be redeemed. Because of Adam's sin, according to the psalmist in Psalm chapter 51, we were born in sin. In sin, our mothers conceived us. So we don't, we don't need redemption because we commit sin. We need redemption from sin because we were born into sin. Sin is in our DNA. And we need a blood transfusion. We need Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And when God now punished the serpent in Genesis 3.15, he says, I'm going to send the seed of the woman, and, and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to crush the serpent. The serpent will strike at his heel, meaning Christ is going to come and die to redeem man. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 calls Jesus the second Adam. He's the second Adam because he's going to come and he's going to undo all that Adam did. That is what it means to redeem. So he's now purchasing us of the marketplace of sin where Jesus is standing in our place and becoming sin for us. That's why in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says, when Christ died, we died with him. When he rose, we rose with him. Sin has no dominion over us. Why? Because we died in Christ Jesus. And so the fact that when Jesus now redeems us, he now takes us from that place where we were. Remember what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Our hearts are evil and deceitfully sick. Who can understand it? That's what sin did. And so David cried out in Psalm 51, O Lord, create in me a clean heart and a steadfast spirit within me. And so we all have to cry out for God to redeem us because of where we were being born in sin. So Jesus Christ, he came as our redeemer and he redeemed us from the marketplace of sin. Notice what Job says in Job chapter 19 verse 25. As for me, I know that my redeemer lives and at last he will take his stand on the earth. In Job 33 verse 28 says, he has redeemed my soul from going to the pit. And my life shall see light. 
in Psalms chapter 34, verse 22, states, The Lord redeems my soul, the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 43, verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. And traveling on in time, we come up to the New Testament era, and Paul speaking to the church at Galatia says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become the curse for us. In Galatians 4, 5, he says, so that he might redeem us who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In Titus 2, 14, he says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous to do good deeds. So we see the redemption of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ is at the center of your life, you must understand why. He is, first of all, your Redeemer. You could not have stand before God's presence. The wrath of God was coming down upon all men, and Jesus became the propitiation for our sins. He stood in our place. He redeemed us of the marketplace of sin. That is the centrality of the gospel message, that Jesus is our Redeemer. So that's the first thing. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you must walk around every day understanding that Jesus Christ is your Redeemer. Uh, secondly, Christ is our God, creator of all things. In verse 7, in verse 15 through 17 of Colossians chapter 1, watch what he says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses use this passage to say that, see here, he was created. Um, no, it's not saying that Jesus Christ is created in any way. It's saying that he is the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, is speaking of the rebirth or being coming now to be have predominance or preeminence above everything that has been created is speaking more to his authority and his sonship, not to him being created. And so if you understand the reading of the language, it's saying that Jesus Christ takes preeminence over everything that is created. Verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in heaven, on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Now, wait a minute. I was in uh, seminary and I had a guy in my spiritual formation class and he, he said that we, he said something in one of our meetings and after we left the meeting, I, I asked him about what he said and he said that he, he truly believed that God used the evolutionary process to create the world. And I thought I was being punked at the moment, so I looked around for the video cameras, and there were no video cameras, and <laughs> he was serious, and so I, I was like, oh, okay, how is that possible? He's like, well, God started it all, and then he let it go. I'm like, but evolution means it evolved, and creation means that someone created. Both can't come together. He said, yes, 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 it can. I, and and. I sat there and I realized that you could have an educated fool. Because anyone who believes in the evolutionary process, please don't, don't, don't hate the messenger. I got to 
anyone who believes in the evolutionary process, I'm not saying it. The Bible says you're a fool. Why would I say that? Just read Proverbs chapter 1. It says, The beginning of knowledge is the fear of God, and fools despise his wisdom and his instruction. And the scripture teaches that Jesus is creator of the world. So we can't have both a creator, someone actively doing something, as it shows in Genesis. On the first day he did this, second day he did this, third day he did this. And then for there also to be evolution, <coughs> which let me just describe evolution for you. Evolution is simply, there was nothing, nothing. Imagine nothing. If you can, imagine nothing. Then something appeared. What was the something? I don't know. It was just something. So something appeared out of nothing, and then something, after a trillion years, something became molecules, and molecules formed and made a galaxy. Well, how did that happen? I don't know. It was nothing that came from, it was nothing that made something, and something that came from nothing produced something else, and the something else was a galaxy. So now we have a galaxy. So the galaxy came from out of nowhere, so now we have a galaxy. The galaxy got tired of being a galaxy. It started to form gases and so forth, and the galaxy said, you know what, let's make planets, so the galaxy made planets. And the planets got tired of being uninhabitable, so the planets just decided after being in the galaxy, let's just form a planet that is, that is habitable. So it formed the Earth. And after a trillion years, the world got tired of just sitting there with nothing. So it formed something, and an amoeba slime thing came from outer space. Where did it come from? Nowhere. It just appeared, and then it fell down onto the earth. Where did the earth come from? It just appeared, and then it fell into the ocean. What was ocean? They don't know. It just appeared. And then it fell into the ocean, became a fish. What's a fish? We don't know. It just appeared. So the fish appeared, and after a billion years, the fish was swimming around, and the fish got tired swimming and said, I feel like walking. So the fish swimmed up to the shore and walked on the sand. But what sand? I don't know. Where did it come from? I don't know. It just appeared. So it walked on the sand, and then the fish walked upon the sand. But wait a minute. Doesn't fish swim? Yes. It now has legs. Where did the legs come from? I don't know. He got tired of swimming. So he walked up on the sand. The fish walked up, jumping upon, became a frog after a trillion years. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why did he become a frog? He doesn't know. He just decided he wanted to jump rather than swim. So now he's a frog. He's jumping, eating flies. He got tired eating flies. He saw this tree. Say, I'm tired of flies. I need a different dinner. Climbed up the tree and became a monkey. <laughs> a trillion years later, the monkey is eating bananas and the monkey got tired. Ooh, I'm tired of eating bananas. So the monkey said, you know what? I'm done with this. The monkey wanted to talk, he couldn't talk, so he moved to Frisco, got a four-bedroom house in Alexis. <laughs> That's the evolution. Y'all think I'm making that up? I'm, I wish I was. That's what evolution teaches. It's like crazy, right? I mean, like, it's cr it takes more faith to believe that foolishness than it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's evolution. But here's what Paul is saying, that Christ is the creator of all things. So evolution can be in your mind and creation. You only could have one. And so when our children go to school, when our young ones are in schools, and these schools teaching, watch this. Here's how you know people are educated fools. Do you know in your government system of education, they're teaching evolution as a fact? But it's called a theory. It's called a theory of evolution. Teachers are calling the theory of evolution fact, but here's the crazy thing. A theory means it's a theory. It's a theory. It was made up. It, there, there is no facts to it. That's why it's called theory. 
theory of evolution, but yet still they're teaching facts. Evolution as a fact, why? It's not about, they, they know that cannot be proven. They know it's not truth. It's simply a rejection of God. They rather, as Romans chapter 1 said, they rather worship the created thing rather than its creator. So they put the thing that was created in the place of the God who created the thing. And that's what mankind is doing. And so when Paul says here that Jesus, he is the creator, watch this, for by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him, for him, through him. He was before all things, is before all things, and, him, and in him all things are held together. So that means when Jesus Christ is dying on the cross and they're putting the nails in his hands, he's holding the molecules together. He's holding the DNA of everyone together. He's holding the molecular structure of every human being together. He's holding all the gases and everything that holds the planets together as they're passing the nails through his hand. In his hand, he's holding all things. Who can understand that the creator of the world who created the nails came down to have a nail placed in his hand? The creator of the world who created the trees came down to be nailed upon a tree. The creator of the world, Christ himself, he came down and he stood in the place. He is the creator God. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, it says, In the beginning was the Word. Speaking of Yeshua, Hamashiach, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, was in the beginning with God. And all things that were made, that means everything that was made, was made by him, and without him was nothing made that had been made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of man. So wait a minute. John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, from verse 1 to verse 5, saying that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. In Colossians 1, we're seeing here that Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, whether thrones or dominions and spirits or whatever. He created it all, earth, heaven, everything. He created it all. The Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, says that God, in these last days, God, be, God before has spoken to the prophets, and in these last days have spoken to us through his Son, through whom he made heir of all things and through whom he created the world. So wait a minute. Galatians 1 says that he created the world. Hebrews 1 says Christ created the world. John 1 said Christ created the world. Revelation 1 said he's the beginning and the end. He's before and after all things. So that means when you go to Genesis chapter 1, in verse 1, the Elohim, which is plural, Elohim said, let there be. And it came down to the sixth day. Then he said, let us make man in verse 26 so the one who was saying let there be let there be let there be let there be until verse 25 is yeshua jesus christ himself god the trinity did not come into picture until christ said now let us make man in our own image so throughout the scripture the one who created everything the scripture saying that that is jesus christ unless you understand that jesus christ who died on the tree to redeem you from your sins is the same one who created you then you don't really know who jesus christ is he is the creator of the world. He is our redeemer. He is our creator. More than that, he is the only one who can reconcile us to the Father. He's the only one who can bring us into a relationship with the Father. He's the only one who can bring us into intimacy with God. How? How? Christ is the head of the church. He reconciles us to the Father. In verse 18 through 22, watch what it says. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness 
to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in your mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you to his fleshly body through death in order to present you before holy and blameless and above reproach. So the scripture here is showing that Christ has done something for us that we could have never done. He brought us into relationship with the Father. This is why Paul in Romans chapter 6 would say, when Christ died, we died with him. When he rose, we rose with him. Sin has no dominion over us because those who've died has, have died to sin. And so now we see we have been reconciled to God the Father through Jesus Christ because no one else has the ability to bring us to God but Christ the Son. And so Jesus has reconciled us, so he's mended that relationship that Adam distorted. See, first of all, Adam ruined our relationship with God, and Adam placed us in the bondage of sin. So Jesus came, and Jesus he, he, he purchased us, he redeemed us from that marketplace of sin. And then he reconciled us to God. Now that we, we are now adopted into the kingdom of God, and we are now called children of God. But point number four, um, Christ is not only our redeemer, he is not only our creator, he is not only the one who reconciled us to the Father, but he is also the gospel message, the mystery of the Old Testament, the hope of the glory of God. What am I saying? In verse 23, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was a minister, so that I may fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested in his saints. <coughs> Excuse me. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The apostle is saying that this whole thing about Christ being in us was a mystery in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, he's saying from Genesis to Malachi, all of this was speaking to Mashiach. All of this was speaking to Christ. Now, when I use, notice I'm saying Mashiach all the time because that's who Jesus Christ is. We say Jesus Christ, um, the word or the name Jesus is a Greek word coming from his actual Greek name is in Jesus or in Jesus, that's, that's the Greek pronunciation of Jesus' name. And in the English, we have that as Jesus or Jesus. And so when we see that Greek name, it comes from the Hebrew name, which when speak in English is called Joshua or the Hebrew pronunciation Yeshua. And so when we see Jesus the Christ, the word Christ simply means anointed one. That's in the Greek and in the Hebrew is Mashiach. So Jesus, the Christ, is actually Yeshua HaMashiach. 
that's his Hebrew name. So that's who, that's what he was called, Yeshua HaMashiach. And so when we look in the scriptures from the Old Testament, it beginning with Christ creating everything, going down to Genesis chapter 1, sorry, starting from Genesis chapter 1 when Christ created everything, to Genesis chapter 3 when man messed up everything, and God comes in Genesis 3.15, the Father, and says that he will send the Son to redeem mankind and destroy the serpent. And so throughout the scriptures now, from the beginning, from Genesis 3.15 to the end of Malachi, it's all about the coming Messiah. Abram, when he's going out, the reason why God chose Abram to bless the world through him is speaking of the seed coming from Abram, who is Christ the Messiah. And every, everything after that was pointing to this son, the seed of the woman who would come, every prophet was speaking concerning him, the kings were trying to represent him, the nation of Israel was standing out for him throughout the entire Old Testament. The whole thing is simply revealing Messiah, Mashiach, Jesus Christ who was to come. And when he came in the New Testament, those who were expecting him rejected him and they crucified him because they did not understand the scripture. That's why the chiefs among them, the Pharisees who studied the book. One of the chief Pharisees, his name was Nicodemus, and showing how confused these guys were. They had the book, but they did not understand anything in the book. Why? Because Jesus came and it was the Pharisees who knew the law, who rejected him because he said that he fulfilled the law. Remember when Nicodemus came to him in chapter 3 of the book, of the Gospel of John, it says, and the in John chapter 3, it says, And one came to him by night. Yeah, it says, Now there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus replied and said, How can a man be born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus says, No. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and everyone hears the sound of it, but no one knows where it comes from. So too is those who are born of the spirit. Nicodemus replied and said, how can these things be? Jesus said to him, are you not the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And so we have people who are teaching the Old Testament Scripture who had no comprehension of what it was saying. Just like today we have people teaching the Bible who have no comprehension of what it's saying. Because we have people all wrapped up in the things of man and the doctrine of man and we insert our worldly mess into the Word of God, trying to make the Word of God about us. When it's not about us, it's about God. The Word of God is not to make us feel good. The Word of God is to conform us to the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. The Word of God is not about me and me coming to, to, to get a word from God. No, the word, God has already said it. His Word is already here. The Word of God now is about me allowing the Holy Spirit to do a work in me, to change all that is corrupt within me, to bring me closer into an intimacy with God the Father. No man can do that. Jesus says... My word is truth. And I will not leave his orphans, but I will send you a comforter, and he would abide in you, and he would lead you into all truth. 
And so when we see here, uh, Paul is saying that this mystery of Jesus Christ was hidden in the Old Testament. Those in the Old Testament couldn't see it. And there, during the time of Christ, those who were there, they couldn't see it. They rejected the seed of the woman. They rejected Messiah. They rejected Mashiach. They rejected Yeshua. They rejected him, and they killed him. Of course, they didn't take his life. He gave his life. But they rejected him and they killed him. And he is the hope. Christ himself. He is our hope. Uh, point number five, as I close, of one more point. Point number five is Christ is the purpose of our walk. So why are we living here today? Like, like why are we here? Like, why, why are we even sitting here right now? Well, Paul says we proclaim him. We admonish every man and teach every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Wait a minute. So the job of the church is to present everyone complete in Christ. Yes. So the goal of our teaching is to present everyone complete in Christ. Yes. So the goal of everything we do as believers is to make sure that we are all complete in Christ. Yes. Why? He says, for this purpose I also labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Why is he striving? He's striving to make sure that as believers, everyone who we come in contact with have this deep fervor, this deep love, this deep abiding faith in Jesus Christ and that their life to live is Christ and to die would be gain. For everything in their life is consumed with doing the will of the one who created them, doing the will of the one who redeemed them, doing the will of the one who reconciled them, doing the will of the one who is their creator, doing the will of the one who is the purpose and the hope for everything that they believe in. He is getting the church to understand, listen, you need to stand in and on Jesus. Jesus Christ because you know as the songwriter says our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and his righteousness and if we are not standing on Jesus Christ if we're not standing in Jesus Christ then we do not have faith in Jesus Christ and I close with this Paul says that Christ is the true mystery of God he is our encouragement. Christ is our encouragement. In chapter 2 of Colossians, in verse 2 and 3, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knitted together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery. That is Christ himself. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself, he is the mystery of God. All the prophets in the Old Testament, everyone who came before, all the priests, all the sacrificial, the sacrificial system they had, the priests who came, the prophets who came, everything they were doing was pointing to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled that. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people set apart for God's own possession. What was he saying? Because before, remember, in the Old Testament, they had the priesthood, right? They had the priests who would go in the Levitical priest and they had to wear the special clothes and put the big um, rope around their waist and only one priest can go into the holies of holies at one point in his life. And if the bell stopped ringing when he goes in to present the sacrifice, then they would pull him out by the rope that's why the rope was tied around his waist because if the bell stopped ringing that means God did not accept the sacrifice and he killed the priest and so now Peter is saying that 
We don't need anyone to go and give any blood sacrifice for us. Jesus Christ died and he covers us with his blood. And so we are now the royal priesthood. We are all priests in our own homes. And so Paul says now, because of this, I urge you to present yourself a living and a hagios, a living and a holy sacrifice set apart for God's own possession. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. It says, set apart for God's own possession. This is your spiritual service of worship. Doing what? Presenting yourself daily before God as believers in Jesus Christ, living for Jesus Christ. This is your daily sacrifice. And watch what he says, because this is crazy. This is speaking to us right now in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, church, but be transformed by the way you think. What? Here's what has happened. Everywhere I travel, everywhere I go, I am so um, disheartened by what we call church. Church has become about men, women, and how we feel about things. Church has become about making people feel comfortable, making people feel good. It's an artificial flavoring. It's something um, back in the day, we couldn't afford Kool-Aid. Yes, believe it or not, Kool-Aid is 25 cents, couldn't afford Kool-Aid. So we had this thing called Flavor-Aid. It's something just like Kool-Aid. It gives it the color, gives it the flavor, gives it the little taste. But flavoring, Kool-Aid, all is the same. It's called artificial coloring. And see, the thing about artificial coloring is that when it goes into something, it gives the illusion of something. It gives the illusion of something. That's, see, when you put artificial coloring in the water, the, the water isn't really that color. That's why it's called artificial coloring, because water has no color. That's why when you look at the ocean, everyone would say, oh, when you go to Greece, how blue the ocean water is. And when you go to the Bahamas, look at how turquoise or green and, and how luscious blue. And I'm like, the water doesn't have a color. What are you saying? Well, look at the blue sky. The sky isn't blue. The sky is clear. So why do we call the sky blue? It's an illusion. Why do we call the ocean blue or green? It's an illusion. Why? When you take the ocean water up, what color do you see? None. It's, it's a reflection of something. And when you go up in the sky, you can go as far as you can. You will find no color called blue. So what is that saying? When we look at the church today, we're seeing something filled with coloring. We have these artificial coloring, these artificial flavors, these artificial things, and it has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you look at the churches around the world and you go in Europe and you go in the Middle East and the church, the, the, the churches, are, they're made of gold and silver. Mind you, poor people are right outside the church. And the church, when you walk inside, is like, oh, I mean, they have like paintings all over the roof. I mean, they have these awesome looking, I don't even know what the things are, these monument things with their gold and silver, and they have candles everywhere. And it, and it just feels like you, 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 you can't touch anything. It's sacred. You can't touch anything. It's untouchable. And then when you come to America, it's completely different. You can touch everything. It doesn't matter. You can touch everything. 
but both have the same problem. Jesus Christ is absent. In the Middle East, they speak of religion. In America, there's a new religion, the religion of me. When it says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, individuals, now, here's what's so crazy. How do you know this is true? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 4, Paul says, in the last days, they will accumulate teachers unto themselves. Now, he's speaking about congregations. will turn their air away from the truth and will turn aside to myth. Now, how would you know that people turn aside to myth? When individuals go to church for themselves and not to the worship service. And here's what we've completely missed about worship service. A worship service isn't you or myself going into a place saying we're going to worship or hear someone and then sing. No, that's, that's not the worship service. Listen to what Paul says. I beseech you by the mercies of God to present yourself a living and a holy sacrifice. First of all, that's the sacrificial stuff. Pleasing before God, this is your spiritual service of worship. Oh, oh. Where is that? Well, that's every day. But where is that? Everywhere. So where's my worship? In me. When is that? Every day. Where is that? Everywhere. So it's not a place? Yes. Where is that place? Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may know the will of God. Whoa. So you're trying to tell me every day in my mind I'm supposed to be worshiping God? Yes. Welcome to church. That's what we're supposed to be doing. If the only time you look at a Bible or open a Bible or pick up a Bible is when you come here on a Sunday morning, you are not living as a believer. If you do not have your personal devotional time with Jesus Christ every day, if you do not talk to God every day, if you do not worship Him in your heart and in your mind every day, if, he not, if He's not helping by the power of His Spirit to make decisions in your life every day, then you are not His and He's not yours. We do have this passive Christianity, though. Now, you need to choose today. You're going to be a noun or are you going to be a verb? And that's my word for you. I want to share with you next week the power of the Word of God. But for right now, I leave you with this. Are you a noun Christian or are you a verb Christian? Are you simply one by name or are you one by action? Father God, we thank you. I thank you for everyone in this building. I thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for this beautiful family of Jesus Christ. I pray, oh God, for wherever we go, that there are always people at different levels. So I pray for those who are struggling in their faith right now, whatever difficulty in life they may be going through. You said that you will take our burdens upon yourself and that you would make our burden easy and you would make it heavy upon you. So take the yoke from upon us. Take our burdens. We bring it to you, O oh God. We bring it at the altar. We pour it.